Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. Starting something brand new right now. A journey through Exodus. Ah, oh, this is going to be so much fun. At least for me. <laughs> It'll be for you too. Hey, God is calling you somewhere. He's calling you to something or maybe to someone. And it might look humbling. It might look like hard work. It might look scary. But he's calling you there. Let's talk about that. Here we go. The second book of the Bible, packed with supernatural phenomena, curses, scandals, witchcraft, war, death, pillars of smoke and fire, and oceans swallowing up an army. This summer, we're headed into the wild. Coming to a bridge near you. Exodus is where we're at. Exodus, we're, we're diving into this book this summer. So excited for this. Hey, let me pray. We'll jump into this. Father, thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are our dad. You, you want to be connected with us. And uh, God, we, uh, we, we thank you for uh, the, the closeness of, 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 uh, of that relationship, even though sometimes some of us feel like you are distant. You want a close relationship with us because of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we thank you for who you are. God, we ask that uh, you eliminate all distractions of what we got going on this afternoon, what we got going on this week. You are going to speak to us through your word as you always do. I pray that we listen. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the lens of Scripture zooms in on the book of Exodus, we see the blue water of the Nile carving its way to the desert landscape of barren wasteland. As far as the eye can see, nothing grows except on the banks of this little blue vein. It gives the only hope of life, of growth, of people strong enough, brave enough to live in the Saharan heat. For thousands of years, civilizations have built around this tiny little blue vein. Irrigation canals spill into crop fields. And as the river makes its way into the Mediterranean, it deltas into tiny little fingers into the sea. And it's this spot that creates the perfect farmland. It's an area called Goshen. And it's here the book of Exodus begins. Egypt. See, 400-some years ago, a man named Joseph was sold to Egypt, and after working his way into second-in-command, he moved his large family to settle in Goshen. And over 400 years, this family grew into a nation, the nation of Israel, the nation of Hebrews, a nation living inside of another nation, Egypt. Exodus 1, Exodus 1 verse 12, it says this, The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. All along the blue vein, not far from the crops, you see houses built of mud, brick, stone, straw. The economy of Egypt begins to boom as it's built off the back of Joseph's family, the Hebrews, Israel. Egypt's plan is very simple. Oppress the Hebrews, keep them down, lest they rise up and take over this precious river and this precious land. The rare morning fog hangs over the valley as the first sight of sun peeks over the endless Saharan desert, reflecting off the inlaid gold of the palace walls. It's this palace today that lives in great fear. Despite Egypt's efforts, the Hebrews are growing in numbers, threatening the majority culture. Drastic steps must be taken if they will hold on to this land. So they must erase the society. And to erase the society is pretty simple. You destroy the men, enslave the women. Today's beautiful sunrise will soon be darkened by the decree that goes out from this palace. All Hebrew baby boys are to be aborted, slaughtered, thrown into the Nile. 
And horror quickly spreads over the slave nation as pregnant women hold their bellies with tear-filled eyes. And Exodus chapter 2 brings us into one of these women's homes, a tiny mud home in Goshen. This is where the story begins. Exodus chapter 2 verse 1. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. In chapter 6 we'll find out this man's name is Amran and the woman's name is Jochebed. And though they lived hard lives, it was an exciting time for them. They're newlyweds, a new home. Jochebed has made the mud house feel like home with whatever she could. Homemade textiles and hand-spun pots. It's simple, it's poor, but it's, it's theirs. And it'll do. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Ah, oh, this is such a, such a heartbreaking scene in Scripture. There in that little mud house, Jochebed rocks and, and shushes baby Moses she had him in secret so that his gender wouldn't be checked and approved by Egypt's patrol. And so for three months, they've done what every parent innately does. We protect our babies. But the cries are getting louder. The neighbors now know. People pass by the house. The troops assigned to baby checks make their rounds. And the baby cries at inopportune times. And how do you tell a three-month-old not to cry? The couple knows they can't keep this going forever. It's only a matter of time. And the longer they have him, the harder the murder will be. And so for nights, Jochebed cries herself to sleep as she brings herself to accept the most daring and outrageous of ideas. When she could hide him no longer, she took from him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with butamen and pitch. She put the, the, the child in it, placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. I love this. This is, this is, this is cool. The, the word for basket used here in Exodus chapter 2 is the same word for ark in Genesis chapter 6 for the story of Noah's ark. Now don't misunderstand. It's not like Jacobin made a, a five-story ship, constructed this, and then put it into the Nile. There's symbolism here. There, there's parallelism here. As the ark, as the boat, carried the hope of the human race across the floodwaters, so this little basket carries the hope for the Hebrew race over the Nile. She holds the basket tight to her chest as her eyes squeeze out painful tears, carries it to the Nile, gently pushes it into the current, and watches her son float off. Pharaoh's decree was you put the boys in the river. Technically, she obeyed. The love of a mom mixed with the fear of God creates brilliant ideas. Mom tells Moses' big sister Miriam, follow the basket, walk carefully, don't draw attention to it, just follow it at a distance. And as the basket floats down the Nile, Miriam, the sister, nonchalantly walks along the muddy banks of the Nile, periodically looking out of the corner of her eye at her baby brother that is floating down the river. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came to the bathe in the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister Miriam said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? I think I know of somebody. Oh, scripture's so good, you should read it sometime. It's captivating. Moses goes back to his mom. Meanwhile, Pharaoh's daughter pays Jochebed to watch her own son. What a deal. In my house... After a long day, I'll get home from work, and Nicole will say to me, Honey, Mama needs a pay raise. And I, off, I always offered like, for that payment to be in some loving, but I don't get taken up on that. 
Maybe we should try pushing our kids down the Desplaines River and see what happens. I mean, this is so wild. Mama gets paid for raising her own son. But it, it, it gets better than that. When he reaches age, instead of sending her son off to do slave labor, she sends him to the palace to receive a premier education. This river idea worked out. And it's here. Scripture fast forwards decades. Because verse 11, chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, Moses is already 40 years old in verse 11. He steps out of the royal palace. His eyes immediately adjust to the sunlit brown landscape, that the blowing dust and the, the hot, dry air. He goes for a walk through his old neighborhood where his Hebrew nanny raised him. At this point, he knows he's a Hebrew. He might be a little fuzzy on the details, but this neighborhood that he walks, these are his people. And it's complicated emotions. I mean, he's from the palace. He's educated. He's treated as royalty. He's above these slaves. Yet he looks like them. He came from them. He was raised by them. He looks like his own slaves. And somehow, for some reason, they have his heart. As he rounds one of the corners, he sees a commotion a block down. It's more of a blur at this point, but the yelling is clear. Out of curiosity, he picks up pace, and what he finds will change his life, will change the region, will change the world forever. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. It's this defining moment, not just because it's a murder, not just because it's a loss of life, but it's this that drives a wedge between Moses and his royal identity. With every blow that Moses throws, Moses isn't just killing an Egyptian, he's killing the Egyptian in him. There's part of him that lives with shame, living as an outsider in the palace, looking different than the rest of the family, looking like the servants. But there's also part of him that lives with guilt, he should have been dead. At best, he should be living in the slave slums with marks on his back and little on his plate. Instead, there he is, dining at Pharaoh's cushy table, learning from his personal teachers. Each palace perk grows this sense of guilt, and it's as if all of this just rises in him and boils over when he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Moses may have hid the body in the sand, but word spreads. It makes it back to Pharaoh who wants to kill this bratty Hebrew who enjoyed the palace only to betray a nation. How does a wanted celebrity family member escape a nation? Through its shadows. But in the Saharan sun, shadows are relief. Shadows are sought after. Shadows are crowded. So throwing a cloak over his head, his feet kick up the dust as he runs through the lesser crowded parts of Goshen, through the fields, over the muck, across the river, the greatness of Egypt, the, the pyramids, the statues, the, the towering temples now fade in the distance as a barren wasteland radiates the desert heat before him. He sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them. And water their flock. You see, there's something in Moses. There's something special in Moses. It's this need to stand up for the little guy. He's done it for the Hebrew already. And he does it for these girls. It's a special quality in Moses. And soon, God will appeal to that quality in Moses to stand up for a nation. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, the, the, the daughter's father. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. A really good way to get a dad to say yes to marrying his daughter is to save the life of said daughter. And it's at this point, the life of Moses could have easily just faded into the history with everybody else. 
And he would have been just fine with that. At this point, he has a wife, he has a child, he has a job, he's 40s, he's a shepherd. At this point, he's thinking, just living the good life, running out the clock, normal good life. And as Moses tends the sheep during the day, holds his child at night and cooks with his wife, satisfied with the life he has, God is about to step in. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb. My my wife grew up in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin, a, a town that's named after this mountain right here. Uh, Interestingly enough, though, in this verse, if you look at this verse again, it says, uh, Moses describes it as the mountain of God. As this book unfolds more, we're going to come back to this mountain because we believe it's here that God will give the Israelites the Ten Commandments. The mountain of God. We'll know this better as Mount Sinai moving forward. God's nation will regather here. God will meet his people here. But first, God wants to meet Moses here. And today, it's just a simple barren mountain. But it casts wonderful shadows to cool off in. And so Moses sits, his back leaning against the rock face. He rubs his foot, temporarily relieving the soreness from the hike. Getting too old for this. Counts the sheep, makes sure the flock is still all in sight. And as he counts, he he sees something off in the distance behind the herd. He squints, he rubs his eyes. It's like a mirage. He's tired. He doesn't feel like inspecting it, but it captivates him. He slowly gets up and curiously walks through the, gaze, the grazing sheep. His eyes are fixated, and the closer he gets to it, the, the more unnatural it feels. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. A big question over the years, and this is what scholars debate about. Scholars like to debate about funny things, but it is like, why, why a bush on fire? What, what, what's the significance of this? And some people will really read into it. You know, so I've read some people say, you know, well, the word for bush is Sinai, and, and that's on Mount Sinai, and so maybe, maybe uh, it's a burning bush because it sounds the same. It's like, okay. Uh, other people say, well, no, the bush represents Israel, and it's on fire, showing that Israel, you know, is in pain. I don't know. I just think God set the bush on fire to get Moses' attention. <laughs> like, as a guy, if something's on fire, I'm going to go check it out. And I'm going to bring everything with me that's flammable. Because that's just what guys do. And so I think God just set the bush on fire to get Moses' attention. And there he is, all alone out in the wilderness. Put yourself in his sandals, and an eerie uncomfortableness falls over Moses. Who set this bush on fire? The crackling. It's not burning. It fascinates Moses. It's, mem- it's mesmerizing him. He, he leans in. He, he looks to the side. And what happens next about sends him tumbling down the mountain. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. He said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. You have to understand, it has been centuries since God has revealed himself. The only hope that the Hebrew people have had at this point is a promise that God made to their patriarch, Abraham, almost 500 years ago. And that hope has been beaten out of them generation after generation after generation. It feels, and you felt this too, I'm sure, but it's starting to feel for the Hebrew people that either God's not coming through, 
Abraham was crazy or they took some wrong turn somewhere and God's done with them. Yet there, out in the barren wasteland, on some no-name hill, this small fire burns and it speaks. And God, who seems so late, who has seemed so distant, is about to make something happen. And it gives us a theology, a theological reality that we don't like, but it's a reality nonetheless as God introduces himself to Moses, and that's this. God's timing often hurts. God's timing often hurts. You know this because you've felt this. Worse yet, you feel it. Would have thought by now you'd have a few years of marriage under your belt, at least a kid on the way. Little did you know, slim pickings, there's a lot of idiots out there. And you're not going to settle, nor should you. But in the meantime, it's lonely. And it hurts. I've been trying for a baby. It's not happening. And every time a friend announces they're pregnant, you, you smile and, and you look excited. But, but your heart aches and your stomach sinks. And it hurts. Or you were laid off months ago now, and you hoped it was just going to be a few weeks, but here you are, interview after interview after interview. Each day the phone doesn't ring. It just drains your hope, and you're starting to feel useless. It hurts. You've been carrying that pain, and you've prayed for physical healing. You've about given up on those prayers. Meanwhile, that health issue is stealing your sleep. You're starting to not feel like yourself. It's stealing your zest for life. It's stealing your hope, and it hurts. This is how Israel has been feeling for centuries. Day after day, year after year, brick after brick, lash after lash, generation after generation, funeral after funeral, their prayers go unanswered, their pain seems unnoticed, their hope seems unnecessary. And some of us know that all too well. Some of us walked in here today wishing we could find our burning bush. Israel waited 500 years. The timing hurt. And I know that doesn't taste good. I was talking to a family last night. Another, uh, they had a, a major health issue in their family earlier this year. It looks like it's going to be a similar major health issue with another family member in the same family this year. And as they're telling me this, I'm not part of the family, but I'm thinking, God, really? All in one year? The timing, come on. See, I'd love to stand up here and tell you, hey, your wait is almost over. God's going to make you happy. But the truth is, I don't know. How many generations of Israelites died as slaves? See, see often we want to identify with the main character every time we read a narrative. We want to identify as Moses, but the reality could very well be that some of us might be one of the many generations of slaves that died as slaves. The reality very well could be that some of the things that we long for in this life won't be satisfied until the next life. I don't know how your pain is going to pan out, but, but I will say some of the most meaningful worship you can ever have, some of the most precious gifts you can ever give God is taking that next step as bad as it hurts, getting out of bed, powering through another day, and worshiping as you wait. The wait hurts, and it may not end soon, but it is never the end if you are in Jesus Christ. So there they are on the side of the hill. The sun now hides behind the mountain, making the crackling bush glow all the more. 
Then the Lord said, look at this, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I've seen it, who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because they're taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It is not like God just woke up here. It's not like he just woke up and goes, oh, wow, they're hurting. What, they're slaves? How long has it been? 500 years? Oh, my goodness, I overslept. I should step in now. No. God was with them every morning they opened their eyes and ate their morsels of breakfast. God was with them every time they kissed their spouse goodbye and walked out the door. God was with them when the whip hit their back. And God was with them as they buried their own. And I don't know if this is any sort of consolation. Maybe you just need to hear this. But God is with you. When that pregnancy test reads negative, God is with you. When that date doesn't call back, God is with you. When your inbox is empty, God is with you. When your boss calls you in to lay you off, God is with you. And God is with you when you get that message, I'm sorry, but we're headed a different direction. And God is with you when the doctor sits you down and says, I hate to tell you this. And maybe that comes as some comfort. Or maybe that's frustrating. Then why does he do something? If he sees my pain, if he knows my loneliness, why does he do something? I don't know. He didn't for 500 years with Israel. I can't answer that question. I don't know. All I know is God's timing hurts. And our job isn't to force things and make judgment calls as to why God does what he does when he does it. Our job is just to get up in the morning and walk in obedience and praise him even in that pain. And then do the same thing the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And I know that may not be what you want to hear. Because I know in this room, there's a lot of deep pain represented in this room. I read it in the prayer request cards. Deep pain in here. I'm not minimizing it. I'm not saying it's easy. We are praying for you. We love you. We are your family. This hurts. It's not the end. God says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. That you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You ever have to go back somewhere and you know it's going to be awkward when you go back? Maybe you got to you know, pick up some stuff from your ex's house and you just know like, ah, oh, this is going to be awkward seeing them. Or you go to a wedding and, and you know you're going to see those family members that you had a falling out with. You know, it's like, oh, it's going to be awkward. Or you go to a funeral and you know you're going to see that person and you're like, kind of wish it was my funeral because this is just going to be really awkward. It's the worst, isn't it? See, this is the last place that Moses wants to go to is back there. He's a wanted man. Going back is a death sentence. He looks weak running off like he did. The Egyptians hate him. He's a traitor. The Hebrews, they can't be too keen. Yeah, sure, he killed an Egyptian, but he also lived in the palace that oppressed his own people. So all around, he's hated. He looks like a total coward. And so, of course, Moses is going to protest here. But Moses said to God, who am I? I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. You got the wrong guy. God, I, I don't know if you were watching. I'm a murderer. I grew up with a silver spoon in my mouth while my people slaved away. Then, like a coward, I totally ran off. You got the wrong guy. And I love, I love this part. God doesn't reply with any sort of pop psychology. So Moses is like, you know, I can't do this. I'm nobody. I'm a coward. I can barely, like, watch my own father-in-law's sheep. And, and God doesn't, like, use our own modern techniques, you know. God doesn't, like, sit him down and go, come now, Moses. You're the best. I think you're super special. You gotta believe in yourself and love yourself. I want you to say, I'm awesome. Say it. I'm awesome. Okay, let's go kick Egypt's butt. No, God doesn't do any of that. Look what he says. Yeah, I know, but I'll be with you. 
I know, I'll, I'll, I'll be with you. Yeah, you're right. Who would listen to you? I mean, look at you. You're a grown man following sheep around the wilderness. You don't have what it takes, but I'll be with you. It's not about who you are. It's about whose you are. Your mind, it's enough. It's the second theology we get from this text. The first didn't feel great. Neither does the second. It is what it is, though. Number two, God's plan is often hard. God's plan is often hard. His timing hurts. His plan is hard. You think about it. God could have freed Israel many different ways that are much easier. God could have made all of the Egyptians sick for like a week and gave the time for the Israelites to run off. He could have done that, right? He didn't want to do that. He wanted to do it a different way, a harder way. See, I know this point isn't popular. There's so many, so many out there. You turn on the TV, televangelists who try to tell you that God's plan for you is about making your wildest dreams come true. This is not that kind of sermon. I'm not going to stand up here and try to sell you God's plan for your life because God doesn't do that in Scripture. God's plan isn't usually about fulfilling your wildest dreams or giving you an easy path of health, wealth, and comfort. God's plan is usually hard. But that difficult path is far more meaningful, far more fulfilling, because it brings you closer to God. I would bet that God's plan for your life is going to be paved with blood, sweat, and tears. It's hard. When I was 17, I I spent a month in Romania in the Carpathian Mountains, uh, Transylvania actually, not far from the um, legend of Condracula. Like his castle is not very far from the, from the camp that I was working at. And uh, so I was helping. I was one of the leaders. And we had kids coming in, playing soccer with them and, and teaching them. It was, it was life-changing for me. There's this one moment, though, it, uh, that summer I'll never forget. The, the camp came up with this game. And camps are notorious for just coming up with the dumbest games. Where this game was that you would tie, uh, you'd be tied to four other people by a rope. And then you would run up a mountain, like over the mountain streams and then like through the trees and then up a mountain. So you'd have like kids like... You know, if, if a tree goes in between you, you're like smacking, smacking each other on the other side of the tree. And so they came up with this game, and they, they're telling me about this, and they're like, you need to be tied to somebody. And I protested. I was like, what idiot came up with this game? This is, this is no fun at all. And I said this to the guy standing next to me. He was from Texas. And he looked at me and said, yeah, right? This is terrible. And they said, he said, but I suppose the more you don't want to do something, the more meaningful a gift it is to God. I'll never forget that. It's pretty easy to live as a Christian today, here. Maybe it'll get harder in the future, I don't know. But it's pretty, we do our fair share of whining, but it's pretty easy right now. You serve when you can, give a small portion of your income, but for the most part, pretty easy, even enjoyable. Like never really serve or you'd rather not, don't sacrifice enough for it to hurt. You know, it's just, it's easy to live that way and just kind of fade into history and, you know, receive whatever eternal reward that that yields. But really following God's plan for your life it's not only going to hurt, but it's going to be hard. It's going to be at times scary. It's going to be the last thing you want to do sometimes. God's plan is often hard. And if it never really is, looking at your own life right now, if you're thinking, man, God's leading for me, it's never really been hard. If you never really have to exercise your faith much, if we're not ever gritting our teeth going, okay, I don't want to do this, but uh, this one's for you, God. If we're constantly taking the easy route, we should ask ourselves, am I really making a difference here in the plan of God? Am I even in the plan of God? Because God's plan is hard. Great outline so far, Junior. God's timing often hurts. God's plan is often hard. So glad I came to church today. It gets worse. You might want to leave while you can. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. 
great point. God, they're not going to believe me. What's that, Moses? You saw a bush burning and it was God? All right, Moses. What kind of bush were you burning out there in the wilderness? They're not going to believe me. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. And he became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. I, I would have too. I hate snakes. Like, I wish I could have seen this down. He throws a staff on the ground. Oh, shoot. And it says he doesn't just like jump back. He like runs off. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it. By Heck no, I'm not going to do that. How many of us, if we were Moses, the story would just end here? Like we'd still be running down the mountain away from the freaking snake. Like millennials would have PTSD every time we saw a staff. Catch it by the tail. Can you imagine that going down, catch it by the tail. It's like, yeah, I'll get a new staff. It's okay, God, just, just let it go. It seems, it seems happy. I mean, Scripture doesn't say this, but I think an hour passes between this part and the next part. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. If that weren't enough, God gives Moses more power. He can, he can make his own hand have leprosy. He can take water from the, the Nile, pour it on the ground, and it turns into blood. God is giving Moses everything he needs to do the job that God is asking him to do. But still, it seems like it's too hard for Moses. And, and I can't blame the guy. A lot of people at this point, when they read this story, they, they really pile on Moses here. Come on, man, you can make sticks turn into snakes. You can strike your own hand with leprosy. You can turn water into blood. Why are you running from this? Instead of leading a nation with these signs, you'd rather watch these sheep? Your life just fading into history? Yeah, Moses represents a lot of us. God has equipped you. God has given you everything he, you need to do what he's asked you to do. You can lead people. You can influence. You can break things down. You can break theology down for little minds to understand. What an amazing gift that is. Types of people gravitate toward you. You have resources. You have abilities. God has given you everything you need to do what he's asking you to do. But some of us are just happy watching the sheep. Living a life of mediocrity. As long as I'm comfortable, as long as I look a certain way, as long as I got this in my account, I'm good. And God says, yeah, but I got so much more for you. You really want to waste the rest of your life doing what you're doing right now? And just like us, Moses is reluctant. In fact, if you look at verse, uh, verse 10 in chapter 4, he's got more excuses. He's like, I can't speak. Don't like public speaking. I stutter. I get tongue-tied. Now, we know this isn't really true because in Acts, in the New Testament, in Acts 7.22, uh, Luke writes in Acts, he writes, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and look at this, and was powerful in speech, in action. He was powerful in speech. He was just fine as a public speaker. And we'll see this next week. Moses does great in front of Pharaoh. When he addresses the nation, he's very influential. A lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times, I mean, the, he has the people's hearts. Like often the people who are scared of the spotlight end up doing the best in it, and Moses is proof of this right here. So he's just using these excuses, and God's like, okay, fine. You know, it's still going to use you. We'll just get your brother Aaron to help. You can share the blessing with him then. And we'll find out later that Aaron ends up being a headache for Moses' leadership. But Moses is reluctant here, just running out of excuses. And it gives us our third point, And that is our reluctancy is often enslaving. Our reluctancy is often enslaving. Your reluctancy to pursue what God has for you, to follow God, your reluctancy to do that is enslaving you in two different ways. First, it enslaves you. Your comfort zone is your prison that you've locked yourself in. God has so much for you to make a difference, to impact eternity, to not live a life that just fades into history. But you won't do what is hard. You won't step out. 
You won't have the courage. New kind of scares you. I can't sign up for that ministry. I can't take responsibility. I can't make that change. I can't open up about that. I can't venture into that. I can't be tied to four people and run up a mountain. I can't teach bridge kids. I can't give more. I can't talk to that person. I can't, I can't, I can't lead my family. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And God says, no, 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 you can. You just won't. So there you'll stay in your comfort that is actually a prison keeping you from living the life that I have for you. Our reluctancy is enslaving to us, but it's also enslaving to other people. The longer Moses drags his feet here, the longer the Israelites will be enslaved. With every excuse Moses gives, is just another whip on the, on the back of the nation. Moses' reluctancy was in the way of the freedom of others. And I wonder how true that is for some of us. Our unwillingness to be used by God in greater ways, to lead out more, to speak to that person, to sign up, to serve, to stretch ourselves, to leave our comfort zone, is a barrier to someone seeing Jesus, hearing about Jesus, and experiencing his church. Your reluctancy to lead your family, fellas, enslaves not only you, but your family. I don't know how many adults I've talked to talk about their childhood and they'll just say, like, Man, I just wish my dad would have led. I just wish he would have led. My childhood would have been much better if he would have just led. How many ladies I've talked to just say, I just wish he'd lead. I just wish he would have led. But that reluctancy is in the way of other people. Our reluctancy to do what God has for us is in the way of freedom of others. See, there's a calling on your life. The timing may not be great. The plan may look extremely difficult and scary. But God has something for you. It might be to stay when you want to go. It might be to go when you want to stay. But God has been bringing you to something. It looks like hard work. It looks humbling. It looks scary. But he wants to use you. He wants to make your life count for something. And so often, what I find with Christians is, as many of us, we want our burning bush. We want a burning bush of our own. You know, I just want God to like reveal himself to me and just like show his plan to me in a big way, in a big powerful way. But that's not often how God works. God often works through a nudge. God works through a conviction. God works through a nagging thought, through a sermon, through a conversation with somebody, through accountability. See, Christians, we don't live our life from burning bush to burning bush. We live our life from conviction to conviction to conviction. We follow those convictions. But when we refuse, when we drag our feet with those convictions, that's where we stop in our walk. So I want to ask you, where are you at with it? I mean, that's really our so what. We come out of God's word. Okay, so what? God speaks through his word. He always does. It is life-changing. What is this? How does this change me? And the question that I want to leave you with is, where am I dragging my feet with God's leading? God is convicting you. This is what God does. We live our life from conviction to conviction. God is convicting you. Where are you dragging your feet with that leading? For some of us in here, we just don't know God. We've heard of him. Maybe we've even read some of the scripture, had some conversations about it. Maybe we even go to church. We haven't actually submitted to
to the lordship of Jesus Christ, putting ourselves under the authority of God, giving our life to Jesus Christ. We've been dragging our feet with it. And, and we got all the excuses. I want to hold off, or I've been going to church for so long, it kind of looked weird for me to actually do that. Maybe that's you. And for others of us, maybe we have submitted ourselves to the lordship of Jesus. We've given our life to Jesus Christ, but there's an area of our life that we are convicted by, but we keep on silencing it and suppressing it, like Moses being reluctant here. It might be, like, it might be leading your family because you haven't been. It might mean giving. It might mean stepping out and serving more. It might mean getting out of your comfort zone more. It might be just being less selfish more. But what is that for you? God is leading you. God is convicting you. It's time to give that up. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.